Welcome to the Voices of Women Physicians podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Tatiana Resnik, a practicing physician and a certified life coach. You will hear about inspirational journeys and practical tips from amazing women physician experts, as well as effective coaching tools and steps to joyful success. Welcome everyone to this episode. And today we have again back Dr. Elisa Chang, and we will continue our discussion about various investment options. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me back. Yeah, please tell us briefly just one, two sentences about yourself for those listeners who did not hear last week's episode. Yeah, so I am an acroplastic specialist as well as a life and money coach. And I really help physicians actually get comfortable and confident in investing so that they can manage their money. And that may be someone who hasn't done any kind of investing and they just don't even know where to start or someone who's very comfortable with managing their stock and bond portfolio, but really wants to think about adding real estate to their portfolio and really just has no clue on how they would want to actually invest in real estate. It is awesome. And now let's talk about various investments. So first, let's talk about traditional mutual funds and EFTs. What's the difference and what should we know about them? Yeah, so a traditional mutual fund is a collection of a lot of different stocks, and these can be actively managed or passively managed. So a passively managed mutual fund is often called the index fund, and that's really made to follow a specific index, the S&P 500 index probably being the most popular or commonly heard about, but there are other indexes as well. A mutual fund may follow any type of investment strategy if it's actively managed, and these are great ways to invest in the stock market to have diversification, you know, just by buying into one fund. An ETF is an exchange-traded fund, and these can be a little bit more efficient compared to mutual funds if they're held in a taxable account. So there are a few differences between ETFs and mutual funds. And a lot of times there may be actually like the same equivalent. So for example, for Vanguard, they have the VTSAX as their total US stock market index fund, and then VTI as their total stock market index ETF. And essentially both of these just hold the same companies in them, but it's a little different with how they're held. So when you have an ETF, there's different shares of the ETF and you just buy on the stock market. And so you can buy and sell these shares anytime during the day, whereas with a mutual fund, it's purchased at the end of the day. And then with the ETF, you can just buy one share. So it doesn't actually take very much to invest in it, right? One share might be $100. So you can buy one share for $100, but you do have to buy a whole share. So you can't buy like one and a half shares. Whereas with mutual funds or mutual index funds, you can buy like partial shares and you only buy them at the end of the day. And there may be a minimum investment, which may be $500, $1,000, $5,000. So you may have to actually spend more in order to get a single investment, but you can also do like an even amount. So if you want to invest like exactly $500, you could do that in a mutual fund, but you couldn't do that in an ETF. So there are other like small differences between the two. And I do have a whole podcast episode actually where I just talk about the difference between ETFs and mutual funds. But for the average person, it's really not going to make that much of a difference whether they're investing in an ETF or investing in a mutual fund. But it's good to know about like these two different entities. If you're in a taxable brokerage account, you may prefer doing an ETF over a mutual fund. Whereas if you're in a retirement account, it probably matters a little less because the tax efficiency is really not going to matter. 
Makes sense, yes. And now I would like to talk about various tools to track your spending and to track your net worth. Like there are some apps available, like Every Dollar app or You Need the Budget app. What else? Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of different softwares out there. And I haven't personally necessarily tried a lot of them. I actually just use an Excel spreadsheet. And I've been tracking my finances that way. Actually, since I started college, I know it's kind of crazy because my sister and I both did this. And I don't feel like my parents ever told us to do this. But we just had the sense that, oh, we should track all our spending. And so we just started tracking all our spending in Excel spreadsheets. And I would actually just put in everything I bought onto Excel spreadsheet. And so that I knew how much I was spending every month. And that practice has just continued and the spreadsheets have just gotten you know, more complicated where I actually put like my budgeting or financial planning all on spreadsheets. But for most people, they're not really going to be doing that. And a lot of people actually don't even necessarily know how much they're spending. They just know that they're able to cover their spending with their income. So there are many different softwares that can help you, some that are paid and some that are free. So you need a budget. YNAV is a popular one that kind of helps you with essentially forward spending and predicting it. I've not used it before. I've heard that there is a, a bit of a learning curve in using it and it is something that you pay a monthly fee in order to do. But I've also heard people really love it in order for them to actually figure out their budgeting. And I don't love the word budgeting because to me, budgeting is like saying dieting, right? It sounds restrictive. Like, you know, you can't spend more than such and such. Like a diet is like, oh, you can't eat more than such and such. But what I like like to really think about more is having a spending plan like you have an eating plan, right? So you're planning ahead of time what you're going to spend your money on so that you're spending where your values are and you're spending based on like your prefrontal cortex as opposed to like, oh, that looks shiny. Like I want that, <laughs> right? Because I think Amazon has made it super easy just to put a bunch of things in the cart and it arrives. And then there are a lot of times I think we buy things that like we don't end up using, we didn't really actually need. And then it's a little bit too much of a hassle to return it. And it just becomes clutter. Yes. Personal Capital, which they've changed their name to Empower, is a great app that's free where you can link all your financial accounts. And so in one place, you can see your financial net worth and you can also link all your credit cards so you can see your spending from the credit card standpoint. And that I have used. And I do actually think it's nice to be able to pull everything in and just see all that in place. The one thing is that they will kind of reach out to you and try to sell you different financial services. So you can just very politely say no and then continue to use their app. And again, they just recently changed their name to Empower. And then Mint is another common app that people like to use. It is a little bit more simpler than YNAB and it is also free, but it's based on ads. So if you start using Mint, then you will see a lot of ads in there, but it is free. So that is a bonus. But I think whatever system you use, like it should be something that you're really actually going to use and keep on top of. In general, I think like, why not try the free ones to see how you like it? And if it's not enough for you, if it's not easy enough to use, then there are many apps where there is you know, a fee, a cost associated with them. But maybe if that's more along the lines of what you need and gives you the tools so that you can move forward, then it can be worth spending that money. When you use Excel spreadsheet, how do you do it? Do you do it like every day, like once a week, once a month? Do you put like absolutely everything, like this coffee at Starbucks or only above certain threshold? So every person can choose what is important for them and what to do. But I actually 
So my husband, what he'll do is he'll put all his spending onto a Google spreadsheet and I'll just copy that into the Excel spreadsheet. And I don't know how often he does it. I think probably every time he just spends money, he'll just come home and put things in. He actually does like a grocery shopping and more of the rudimentary type of shopping, like, you know, going to Target and things like that. I probably generally do it about once a week where I'll put my expenses in. And honestly, I do put all the different expenses in. I think it's good to actually look at it. So there are studies to show that when we spend cash, we're less likely likely to spend money than we do with credit cards. But I think if you get in the habit of kind of reviewing your spending and seeing your spending, that can potentially curb that effect of spending more just because you're putting on a credit card. And then once a month, I'll actually kind of look at totals, add things up, you know, compare what's in our accounts. And when, you know, credit card statements come in, I'll actually check to make sure all the items on the credit card were things that we actually did charge. Because, I mean, you may find that there may be some charge that either you forgot about, didn't realize, some automatic charge, some subscription you don't use anymore, or even finding a potential fraudulent charge. Now, I think credit cards are actually really good these days about contacting you whenever there's something that seems amiss. So I haven't actually seen any credit card charge that I didn't recognize that I didn't get contacted by a credit card company, you know, about like, hey, like, was this charge really from you type of situation? That's very good. And let's talk a little bit about backdoor Ross array. Like, I'm familiar, but for our listeners who would like to learn, Yeah. So an IRA is an individual retirement account. And so for all retirement accounts, they basically come in two flavors, traditional and Roth. And so for a traditional retirement account, you're putting in pre-tax money. So money that hasn't been taxed, it gets to sit and grow tax-free in that account. And then when you take it out, you have to pay taxes on it, on the money that went in, as well as all the earnings. With a Roth version, you're putting post-tax money in. So you're paying taxes on that money, so it's post-tax money. But then it gets to grow tax-free, and you never have to pay taxes on it when you withdraw it. And so if you have a longer time horizon, like at least five years before you're going to take that money out, then generally a Roth is going to be more advantageous. Now, when it comes to a IRA, for most people, a Roth is always going to be the way to go. And that's because if you have a W-2 job, or you're self-employed, but if you have access to a retirement account from work and you're above a certain income threshold, which we as physicians almost all are, I don't remember what the number is off the top of my head, but if you're making, I think it's numbers like around 70 some thousand. So almost every physician's above that number. Then if you put money into a traditional IRA, you can't actually tax deduct it. So then if you're putting like post-tax money into your traditional IRA, that doesn't make sense because then you're going to pay taxes on it when it comes out. So you really want to put it into the Roth IRA. But when they made the Roth IRA, they made it such that if you're a certain income limit, that you can't actually directly put money into the Roth IRA. And we as physicians typically are above that income limit as well. So that one's higher than the traditional IRA max of being able to deduct the money that goes in. So the backdoor Roth IRA is really a strategy in order to get the money into the Roth IRA if you are above the income limits for a Roth IRA. So basically, you put the money into the traditional IRA, and then you do a Roth conversion, moving that money from the traditional IRA to the Roth IRA, and then it's now in the Roth IRA. 
And so this works really well if you don't have any money in a traditional IRA that was pre-tax. Now, what I mean by that, well, let's say you worked somewhere and you worked there for, I don't know, five years and then you left. And over those five years, you contributed to a traditional 401k. Now that you left, you want to move that 401k out. Well, if you put that 401k money into a traditional IRA, now that money truly is pre-tax money as opposed to the money that maybe you put in just from yourself into a traditional IRA. So now if you do the backdoor Roth IRA conversion, you do need to pay taxes on that money that you're converting. So it can get a little bit more messy if you've got money that's in a traditional IRA that really is pre-tax. But if you've never done that, if you don't have any traditional IRA at all, then you can open up a traditional IRA, put money in. And whenever you put your own money in, you're essentially putting post-tax money in because if you have a W-2 job, you know that all those taxes are taken out before you ever get your paycheck. And that means it's post-tax money. So you're putting that post-tax money in and then you do the conversion into the Roth IRA. So it stays post-tax money and you just don't get the deduction when you file your taxes. Thank you so much. And I would like to remind our listeners that none of what we discuss on this podcast is financial or any type of advice. It is just for entertainment and educational purposes only. Yes. Yeah, I am not a certified financial planner. I'm well knowledgeable in finances, but personal finance is personal. So it's really about you. And so, yes, this is all for education and entertainment. And now let's talk about common mistakes from your experience or from what you've seen other people do. What would be most common important mistakes to avoid on financial journey? Yeah. So one of the things is that we as physicians tend to not start investing until later on in our life, especially compared to you know our peers, maybe from undergrad who went and got jobs right away. And so we're kind of making up for lost time. And because of that, we generally need to put in a little bit more towards investments than maybe our peers that started much earlier because we haven't had that compound interest in. So I would say for most physicians, you want to be looking at investing about 20 to 30% of your gross income towards growth your wealth. And what I mean by that, I mean, that could be potentially paying down debt, like your education debt, or investing it into assets. And when I say investing in assets, I mean, assets that essentially are things that could put money in your pocket. So buying into, you know, stocks and bonds, or real estate, but not necessarily your primary residence. Because while your primary residence may appreciate, your primary residence is really taking money out of your pocket the entire time you own it. People underestimate how much cost goes into buying their own primary residence. And I think that is another mistake that a lot of physicians make is that we buy our primary residence too soon, or we buy something a little bigger than or more expensive or at a higher price point, I should say, than what is really comfortable for our current financial situation, such that we end up kind of spending all of our disposable income towards that house. So it's very easy to buy a house. There are physician loans where you can put essentially no money down or very minimal money down. And when you buy the house, then you're not paying your realtor. The seller's paying your realtor. So you can get into a house without actually spending that much money. But when it comes to selling a house, you're paying your realtor, you're paying the buyer's realtor, you're paying the broker, you're paying the closing costs. So that's usually about 10% of the value of the house. So you got to remember that if you're not going to be in the house long enough for the appreciation to make up the difference, you could really end up finding you have to actually bring money to the table in order to sell the house, especially if you're not putting a traditional 10, 20% down. 
And then you want to look at the fact that most houses are going to require maintenance. Even if you are buying a newer construction house, you want to be planning on about two to four percent of the value of the house that you're just going to be spending on things like fixing the roof, fixing the siding, fixing the furnace, the AC, like the main structural components of the house. I'm not talking about things like paying for utilities or paying for lawn care or cleaning the house or all those expenses, which are also expenses of owning a house. So it is not a bad thing to rent. Especially considering that most physicians leave their first job out of training within a two or three year time period, I think it's like over fifty percent leave within two years. So if you are only going to stay in two years, and you know a lot of times our jobs have non compete, so you end up moving somewhere else. If that means you end up moving where you are and moving where you're living, then that can really be a huge. Chunk of money that you're spending in order to sell that house, and you may end up having to keep that house. Like it may take some months for you to melt to sell, and so you're still paying for that mortgage while you're waiting for it to sell. So I would really recommend renting when you first start working until you really know that like you are going to stay in that area, that this is a job that you really like to be at. Unless you really just know like I am definitely staying in this area regardless of what happens to my job. Like I will figure it out because my family's here. Or my spouse's family is here, and this is just where we absolutely have to be. And if that's the case, really making sure that you don't have much of a non-compete in your contract, so that you're not in a situation where you're kind of in hardship because it's like staying at a job that sucks or not being able to work in the area because you really need to be at that location. Oh yeah, it's important. It's very important. And from your experience and from all the knowledge you learned. What three lessons did you learn and three tips you would like to give other physicians on their financial journey? So other things is, you know, depending on your debt, your debt situation, you may want to really consider PSLF because a lot of people do actually get their loans forgiven. And we as physicians have the benefit of like during residency and or fellowship, we're often at nonprofit institutions where all those years of payments actually count. So if you, you know, train for like for ophthalmology, it's four years plus I did aquaplastics fellowship, which was another two years. So that's six years. So then if I did PSLF, then it would only take four more years of working at a nonprofit in order to get you know, all my loans. Now I didn't have loans because I did the MD-PhD program, but that's just an example. And a lot of people end up doing six years of training, right? If you're internal medicine and you go into cardiology, that's a three-year fellowship. So that's six years of training. If you're a neurosurgeon, you're already at seven years of training from the get-go. So it may be a real advantage to consider the PSLF program. The other thing is, depending on the percentage rate of interest on your debt, a lot of times like people are really in a rush to pay off their debt, but Debt is really just money that you bought and the price that you paid is the interest. And if that interest is low, then you may not want to be paying that debt down. So people who got a mortgage locked in at 2.53% in the last few years, there's really not a rush to pay down that mortgage because right now inflation's around 6%. So the money is eroding inflation faster than the interest is accumulating. So you're actually better off not paying off that debt and using the money instead of paying down that debt, actually investing it and growing your wealth that way. It's very helpful. Thank you so much for sharing your knowledge and experience. And would like us to tell us for our listeners who would like to get in touch with you, what would be the easiest way to get in touch and tell us a little bit about your program, about coach, about money. 
Thank you. So my website is growyourwealthymindset.com. And there you can actually get to all my social links. I'm on Facebook, I'm on LinkedIn, on Instagram. And you can also just contact me straight from my website as well. So I primarily do one-on-one coaching with individuals so that you really get personalized care. And we really look at your current situation and look at what your goals are. And then actually look at the current reality of your situation and then go through all the options and figure out what you will do and won't do. So that's what I call grow. G is for goals. R is for the reality of the situation. O is for your options. And W is like what you will and will not do. So growing your wealthy mindset to grow your wealth. I love it. Thank you. And I know in these episodes, we talked a lot about just kind of financial information and financial literacy, and that certainly is important. It's important to know if you didn't understand some of the things that we talked about, that it's because the financial world has its own language. And just like the medical world has its own language, when you first hear the language of another industry, it's going to sound a little bit foreign, but it doesn't mean that finances are hard. I mean, any physician can easily control and manage their own finances and investment. It's really not rocket science or it's not medicine hard. It's not med school hard. But sometimes it's just learning the language so that you understand what's going on in there. And it can just take time to learn that language. And even in our different medical specialties, right? Like as ophthalmologists, like we use OD and OS, OD for the right eye and OS for the left eye, right? Like no one else in medicine uses this. So if you look at an ophthalmology note, like it can seem really foreign as well, even though it's another physician note. So just know that like we're all specialized in our own way, but we can actually learn these different words so that we can be comfortable with it. And a lot of times I find that, you know, we don't want to actually take a hard look at like our current situations because we're afraid that we've done something wrong and, you know, we'll never catch up. And what I want to say is like, regardless or not, if you quote did something wrong, like you are at whatever situation you are right now and there's no way to change the past. So there's no benefit to like regretting or ruminating about the things that you did or did not do. But the best thing is to course correct where you are now so that you can get to where you want to go. And it doesn't matter what age you are or how long it's been. The sooner you start, the sooner you're going to get to where you want to go, right? And there are ways to course correct that can get you whatever outcome that you really want as long as your why is strong enough and you're willing to go after it. So I want to just encourage everyone that, you know, a lot of what's stopping us from really becoming wealthy really comes down to mindset. And yes, people are like, oh, you know, it's not easy to change mindset, but we can change mindset. And once we kind of wrap our mind around the yes, like it's okay to say that I want to be rich. I want to be wealthy. I want to be financially free and I can have these things and I deserve these things. Then we can really actually have everything that we deserve. Yes, thank you so much for all the wisdom and knowledge you're sharing. It was so awesome speaking with you. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you for listening to my podcast. If you enjoyed it or found it helpful, please subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share it with a friend. Have any topics you'd like covered? Send me an email at joyfulsuccessliving at gmail.com. Follow me on Facebook and Instagram to connect at Joyful Success Living. Have an amazing week. See you next time. The Voices of Women Physicians podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not provide any medical, financial, tax, legal, or psychological services or advice. You are responsible for your own well-being, decisions, and results. Dr. Resnick is a practicing physician 
but Voices of Women Physicians podcast is not reflective of the opinion of your employer. You should always contact professional if you have any specific questions about your unique situation.